What I'd like to do this morning is try to unfold very practically some steps for how you live the Christian life. Now, before I do that, I want to to uh, describe the Christian life in three phrases from the Bible. Show you how prayer fits in, crucially, to this living of the Christian life. Phrase number one. To live the Christian life is to walk by faith. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I, here it comes, Live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So to live the Christian life is an hour by hour living by faith. Phrase number two, to live the Christian life is to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or verse 25. Of Galatians 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So, to live the Christian life is to walk hour by hour by the help of the Holy Spirit. Third phrase. To live the Christian life is to serve other people in the strength which God supplies. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Let him who serves Serve in the strength which God supplies, that in everything God may get the glory. Now, if you try to pull all that together, I think you can say something like this. To live the Christian life is to live in such a way that Christ gets trusted, I get helped, people get served, and God gets glory. That's what the Christian life is. Is all about. That's normal Christian living. And I believe revival in a church is nothing other than getting red hot for that. Prayer. How do we know that prayer is an essential part of that process? Well, very simple. You look at 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. You look at Ephesians 6.19. Always pray in the Holy Spirit. You look at Luke 18.1. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Well, if you're to always pray and not lose heart, always pray in the Holy Spirit, never cease praying, and the Christian life is a living by faith, hour by hour, then prayer must be an essential part of this living. And I want to just try to unfold for you the steps that have meant most to me and I think are essential to everybody in walking by faith, walking by the Spirit, serving in the power that God supplies, that in everything He might get glory and how prayer fits into that. These little cards, take them in your hand if you have them. If you fold them like this, then they look like a little credit card. I even clipped the edges off the top of mine to make it round on both sides so it looked like a credit card and I'll stick it in my wallet. Aptat is the way you pronounce that word on the outside there, which we made up. Five years ago, I preached a sermon from Galatians 5. I wonder how many were here. In which I developed this acronym, 
as I was trying to unfold and wrestling with you that whole issue in chapter 5 and 6 of what it means to walk by the Holy Spirit and sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh. The result of our efforts was apt at. For some of us, this has become locked in as the very dynamic of our spiritual life. And the APTAT is defined for you here in these five words of the acronym. Admit, pray, trust, act, and thank. This is my sermon text this morning. I want to unfold these five things. They've become so practical to some of us that with Shaw Ransom's encouragement and with uh, Andrea and Carol's help, we've got this card now. If they prove to be useful to you, we'll make more of them so that you can pick them up. So by all means, if you want more, then let us know because we'll run more off. In fact, as I've been preaching this morning and thinking about this, it has occurred to me that often a, a more effective way of witnessing to unbelievers rather than giving a kind of stock sharing of the gospel in four, five, or six steps, to just be able to tell them practically how you live as a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? And to take something like this and say, look, uh, this is the way I approach the challenges of my life. Which leads me now to raise this question. What do you do with this? What's it for? When do you take this out? When do you go through these five steps? Well, I know it would be utterly impractical to say that you go through them before every decision you make or before every challenge you face because we have to make so many decisions in the day that they just come back to back like this. You can't whip out your Bible or a card and read things. That would be totally inauthentic and artificial. So what I have in mind with these cards is this. There are times every day when you face above-average stresses above-average temptations, above-average opportunities for fruitful obedience. That's the moment when you might have time to go to God and walk in your mind and heart through something like Aptet. For me, it's preaching. You see me bowed in my chair behind this pulpit while somebody's reading the text. You could mark it up 99% sure He's doing aptat in his head. Preaching, counseling sessions, crisis calls on the phone, hospital visitation, writing projects, personal witnessing, board meetings. These are the times walking across the bridge, walking to the telephone, walking to a hospital or writing when I go through aptat. And you have the same kinds of things in your life. Today, no doubt, you're facing something. Confrontation with an enemy, an antagonist, somebody who doesn't like you. A difficult visit to the doctor this week to get the diagnosis. A chance to tell someone this week about Jesus. A lesson you might have to teach this week. A job to apply for this week. A new job to take up. A new house to move to. An exam to take in school. Many things to do during the week. You don't know how you're going to get them all done. Every one of you is facing something this week that is above average in its pressure and its tension or its temptation. And aptat is for now. So let me walk through it with you and unfold these steps. A, admit that without Christ you can do nothing of abiding fruitfulness. This is the beginning of the Christian life and it is the beginning of every act of faith that anybody ever performs. The admission of helplessness before God. And I want to show you very practically four 
levels of helplessness in your life because you might say it in principle but not have anything to get your handle on to know what you really mean by it. And God knows when you say to Him, I'm helpless, God, whether you really believe that. So here are four levels of helplessness. Number one, you wouldn't exist without Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him, all things were made, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Without Christ, you would not have been made. Your personhood is a direct creation of Jesus Christ, the Creator of the universe. And you wouldn't be here today if Christ hadn't made you. Second, you would not exist another second if He didn't hold you in being by His sustaining power. Colossians 1.17, He created all things, and in Him all things hold together, including the molecules of your eyeball, tongue, hand, and the breath you take. doesn't say in Acts 17.25, from Him we have breath and life and everything. The next breath you take, the several dozen breaths you'll take before this, this service is over are direct gifts of the sovereign Jesus Christ holding you in being and keeping the processes of your body running. Third level of dependence is you would have no virtue at all. Not one ounce of virtue would you have in your heart. Would God not put it there? Now, I get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man, that is the man without Christ, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned until Christ invades your heart and gives you a taste for spiritual things. They are like chalk in your mouth. They don't taste good at all. You wonder why people go to church. You wonder why anybody reads the Bible. You wonder why anybody prays. It makes no sense to you that anybody would relate his life around God. That's crazy. But then God invades. The Holy Spirit begins to transform and a taste for spiritual things is given. And you begin to fall in love with God and in love with Scripture. And you need Him. You would not have any true virtue. And by that I mean virtue that is for God's glory and on the basis of God's grace, you would have no true virtue apart from the sovereign working of God in your heart. That's the third level of dependence upon God. And fourth, there would be absolutely no fruitful, uh, abiding fruitfulness coming from your life. That's why we included this text in the card. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And in the context, the nothing would mean nothing of abiding fruitfulness. Now, the world is going to say, that is crazy. Just look around. You can build an institution. You can direct a blockbuster movie without Jesus Christ. And God looks down and says, in a sense, although I made you, I hold you in being. I keep you from killing each other. But yes, you can direct a blockbuster movie without trusting me. But in the end, your whole life will be zero. 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 Husks and ashes if you have built a great institution without faith in Jesus Christ. So there it is. Four levels 
in which we are absolutely dependent upon Jesus Christ. Step number one in the Christian life, if you aren't a Christian this morning and you're saying, what's the first step I must take? Here it is. I can't do anything. I'm shut up to helplessness. I'm a little child. I cannot do anything. And if you're wondering, what's the first step in obedience to this afternoon's challenge? The answer is, I can't do anything without Christ. I am totally dependent upon him. King Solomon was a very wise man. Listen to how he prayed, seeking wisdom for how to rule the nation. O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I don't know how to go out or to come in. If Solomon prayed it, we need to pray it. Step number two is P in Aptat. Pray for God's help. You're about to make a difficult phone call. Talk to your colleague about Christ. Reprimand an employee. Take a test at school. Get the diagnosis from the doctor. You're in the kitchen or the classroom or the car or the office or on the street or in the waiting room. And you admit, I can't handle this. I can't handle this, Father. I can't do it by myself. And nothing is good, good is going to come if I try to muddle through on my own. And then just like a little child, it's just as simple as this. Step number two, Father... Can you do that? Anybody here can't do that? Father, help me. And then you might just want to unfold it a little bit if He gives you grace and you have the strength. Help me not forget what I'm supposed to say. Help me to be caring and not gruff. Help the person I'm going to talk to to have an open heart. Help me to receive the news without murmuring. Help me to remember whose I am. Whatever the need is, just help me. Father, that's the very essence of Christian living. Acknowledging our weakness, banking on His strength, and crying out for His help. Call upon me, there's the verse, call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Isn't it awesome to have a God who commands us to call on Him for help? <laughs> Eat ice cream, you know. Eat chocolate cake. This, these, these big demands the Lord makes upon us. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Psalm 50, 15. You know, we asked at the beginning, how can you so live so that you get help and God gets glory? Isn't that it? Call upon me, I'll help you, I'll get the glory. The one who gives the help gets the glory. The one who gets the help gets the joy. That's the essence of Christian hedonism. It's the essence of the Christian life. Paul dealt with the Lord about this and he said to him, my power is made perfect in your what? Say it. Weakness. That's it, isn't it? You must acknowledge your weakness or you will never give glory to the power of Christ. You can cut a swath through this life with your nose up, your fingers in your armpits, and your buttons bursting, and depending on nobody but yourself, and you will get glory and go to hell. And God will get no glory from that. The, the, the essence of the Christian life is to pull your thumbs out and drop your hands, to drop your nose, to sink your chest, to go onto your face and be like the man in Luke 18. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Lord kicks in with omnipotent forgiveness and omnipotent help. 
when we go down like that. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. Finish it. They are weak, but he is strong. That song is not just for kids. If you grow out of that song, you grow out of Christ and heaven. The Karl Barth, famous Swiss theologian who's dead now, but was in Chicago in the late 60s, Lecturing, and he was asked from the audience by one theologian, can you sum up your theology in one sentence? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Step number three, after you've admitted that you can't do anything on your own, after you have cried out, prayed for help, you trust a promise of God suited to your need. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this is not simply a looking back and a believing in the past Christ who died for your sins and saying, good, I trust you that you died for my sins and that I'm forgiven and turn around and walk right into sin every day of your life. That's not what this means when Paul says he lives by faith. He doesn't mean he lives by faith in a past Christ. That's the foundation of the Christian life, not the power for its everyday living. The power for everyday living is the future promises given to us by the living Christ. We know that because when you analyze faith from Romans, Romans chapter 4, for example, where Abraham is given as the model of faith, justifying faith, it is belief in a promise that he'd have an heir when he was a hundred years old and his wife was barren. That's the kind of faith that saves. You can't separate the faith that enables you to obey from the faith in the past death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people in the evangelical world today trying to separate those two things. Savior, Lord, this is works, this is faith. That is dead wrong. And you will wind up destroying yourself if you try to get yourself saved only by the backward look to the death of Jesus Christ. You must look to the whole Christ he is past, present, and future to be trusted. You look back to the cross, up to his reign, forward to his promise, and that's where the power of obedience comes from. So I want to try to, to, to unfold for you practically how this works. Every day, every person in this room faces the question, right or wrong? Will I do it? Dishonest? Or honest, what will I do? Will I be loving or will I be indifferent? Will I forgive or will I hold a grudge? Will I speak of Christ or will I be silent? Will I follow God after Urbana in the missions or will I stay home and be comfortable? Every one of us faces questions and choices every day. Now, how do you get the motivation to choose God and His way when the world offers such massive incentives to go the other way. Where do you get the wherewithal to overcome the obstacles to obedience? And the answer is faith in the promises of God. This is not a passive thing. Let me show you. You're faced with a, a, a challenge, maybe a temptation negatively or maybe a great opportunity positively. And there's always an alternative to choose. Just go home and do nothing. Watch TV or hold a grudge, or put off your assignments, 
or whatever. And the world holds out temptations that this other way is so much more attractive, so much more happiness is going to come if you do this instead of doing what you think is right. Now, what you do at that point is take the Bible and you ransack it to find a promise tailor-made for this temptation. For example, suppose the temptation is to go on holding a grudge today. And you know there's an opportunity to talk to this person and make it right and say you're sorry and ask for forgiveness. Or if it's their fault to say you want to make it right and you don't want to hold any grudge anymore. And you inside want to see. You want revenge. You want to say something that will put him down the way he said something to put you down. And it's so hard you can't imagine humbling yourself before that person. Where are you going to get the strength to do it? You go to Romans 12:19 and you read, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, you feed him. And if he is thirsty, you give him drink. And right then, the issue is what? Faith. Do you believe that promise? Do you believe in your heart? Vengeance belongs to God. He will settle accounts better than you can. He will take care of this issue far better than you can. And you take that big boulder of vindictiveness and revenge and you just... Roll it onto the judge of the universe who always does right. And you breathe a deep sigh and you fill your glass of water and you walk up to that person in all lowliness and say, I want to make things as right as I can. The power to obey God comes through faith in promises and no other way or its works. Now, it's very impractical to ransack the Bible before every choice, right? You're at school or you're at work and immediately the, the lusting opportunity, for example, is there. Or the stealing opportunity is there. Or the lying opportunity is there. All seeming to hold out such great pleasures. And there's no Bible within reach and no time to reach for it if there were. What are you going to do? You've got to have an arsenal here. And here, there is no other way to live the Christian life. Let me tell you some of the general weapons. You see, there are specified weapons and there are general weapons. The specified weapons are like Romans 12:19 for a case of revenge. The general weapon, well, there are many. I'll give you three or four that I use more than any other weapons in my uh, arsenal. The first one is this. I have used this more often than any other as I'm confronted with challenges that make me afraid or cause me to retreat from an opportunity of doing right and obeying God. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Isaiah 41.10 I have slain more devils in my heart with that sword than any other sword in the Bible. And you know why? Because in a phone booth, in Radio City Music Hall in 1971, my father called me long distance before I got on the plane to go to Germany and he said on the phone, Fear not, son, for he is with you. Be not dismayed, for he is your God. He'll help you. He'll strengthen you. He'll hold you up with his victorious right hand. Go with God. I'll be praying for you. I never forgot that. I wielded that sword again and again in Germany. I can remember on my bike riding through the English gardens on my way to take my oral examinations at the university. I was so scared. I shook all over. I was sweating. I had to take them in German. I had no idea whether I'd pass and three years would be down the tubes. 
and I rode through those English gardens up and down the sidewalks along the Izar River. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. And I passed, and I'm here. I owe my whole life to that verse in some sense, I feel like, in the last 15 years. Here's the second one I use second most often. He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, will he not freely with him give us all things? How many times Satan has come to me and said, Look, look, if you go this way, there will be so much pleasure and so much joy and so much glory and so much comfort. And I have put my hand up and said, All things. He said, All things. You see, the issue is faith. Do you believe that God will give you all things with Him? And all things are better than Satan. Anything He can offer, all things are better. Do you see that the issue of obedience is always, without exception, the issue of faith in the promises of God? You can't separate obedience in your life from saving faith. You either walk by faith or you don't have saving faith. Trust in a promise of God. And I could give you many more in my arsenal here. In fact, I suggest to you that when you read the Bible in the morning or at night, that your goal not to be artificially get through it in a year or something like that, that's a good goal. But the main goal in reading the Bible is to write down 81 promises on pieces of paper that you fold in half and stick in your pocket and take to work and pull out two or three times a day and memorize so that you can fight. Reading the Bible is only to live by. There's nothing in reading the Bible except to live. Get promises that you can live by. Get your sins convicted. Get commands before you for guidance. But mainly, here are 81 pieces of paper from the recent months of my Bible reading where I just write down one verse or two verses from my morning Bible reading, fold it in half, stick it in my pocket, and go with it. When I'm walking across that bridge out there, if I can't remember it in my head, I pull it out and go over it and put it back in. How many times I've been in the hospital or on the phone or counseling in my office, and that verse did it. It did it. The Lord gave it to me for that very day, and He'll do the same for you every single day of your life. If you spend the time to look for the sword, to look for the weapon, instead of just artificially, got those three chapters done, off to work, I did my duty. That's so crazy to treat the Bible like that. You go for a weapon. We're in a warfare and the Bible is our arsenal. Get it into your head because that's where the Satan will fight. Well, we'll finish real quick with these last two steps. Step number four, our first was admit that you can't do anything on your own. And the step number two is to beg and pray and can cry out for help. Step number three is to get a promise of the Lord that will enable you to overcome the obstacles to obedience by having a stronger incentive for doing right than for doing wrong because Christ has promised all things for those who walk in love with Him. And the fourth step is to act. Get out of bed. Stand up. Write the letter. Get on the phone. Now, there are a lot of... You might think, well, that's obvious. Act, of course. But there are a lot of people, you know, who take Galatians 2.20, where it says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And they sit down, and they say, so it is wrong, and it's works, if you uh, don't wake 
to be, sort of be carried into obedience. This. Any willpower exertion is works. That's wrong. That's not true. The Holy Spirit was not given to us to cancel our will. He was given to us to transform our will. The work of God in our heart is not meant to cancel out our work. It's meant to enable our work. That's why we put under act, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. There's a misprint there. It should be Philippians 2.12-13. So if you want to correct that, uh, Philippians 2.12-13. Now the point is, when God works in you, He doesn't cancel out your work. He works in you so that you can work. So it says, work out your salvation. Grit your teeth if you have to. Get out of bed in the morning. Get on your face before God. Do the right thing. Willpower, or self-control as we might call it, is a gift of the Holy Spirit according to Galatians 5.22. The last fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. Self-control feels very much like willpower. And it is. But... When you've admitted that you can't do anything without Christ, when you've cried for help, when you've trusted a promise, and when you've now acted, you don't thank yourself. You thank God. And that's the T in Aptat. You thank God for whatever good comes from your action. You thank God at the end of the day that He's enabled you to walk by faith. So let me sum it up, and we're done. We started by defining the Christian life as... Living by faith, hour by hour. Walking by the Spirit, hour by hour. Serving other people in the strength which God supplies, hour by hour. And we said that we want to find a way to do that so that Christ is trusted, I am helped, others are served, and God gets the glory. How do you do it? Answer, you admit that you can't do anything worthwhile or abiding fruitfulness on your own. You call out to God, your sovereign Father, for help. You trust some tailor-made promise that makes obedience have a larger incentive than disobedience. And then you act. And when all is said and done, you go on your face and say, Thank you, Father, that I had the grace to do at least what I did and forgive the imperfection of my obedience. That's the Christian life, folks. In a nutshell, and I believe that revival is nothing other than when the Holy Spirit comes down in power to make people red hot for aptat. Let's stand for closing prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, my heart's desire and prayer to you now is for the salvation of any lost here who need to get on the road of Aptat, who need to admit that they, didn't, they can do anything without you. May they cry out to you and hear the promise, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And may they believe that promise right now and set themselves on the road of obedience by faith and give you thanks for all their actions here to, hereafter. Lord, I pray for Christians now. We need help in living the Christian life in 1988. And I pray that this prayer week would be a great opportunity of saying in the way we treat it, I mean business with you. I need thee, 
Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Let's close by singing that together.